HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a trailblazer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, it's time for our monthly roundup with the amazing Leah Douglas. For those of you who have not been uh, tuning into my regular updates with Leah, she is a journalist who covers food and agriculture from Washington, D.C. She focuses on corporate power, consolidation, regulation, big business, and political economy as they relate to food, agriculture, labor, land, and the environment. She is currently the associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. And Leah was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting, very well deserved, and was a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. Welcome back to the show, Leah. Thanks so much for uh, joining us to um, shed more insight on what we have been covering uh, low these months now. Kind of hard to believe it's really been about six months since we've been talking about uh, the impact of COVID on um uh, food processing, food workers, whether uh, farm or in our case, mostly we've been focusing on meat packing. Um, so you've got this fantastic map going, which I know you update on a regular basis. What What's new in the map? What's going on? Sure. Well, the map and the accompanying database are tracking COVID-19 cases and outbreaks in the food system. So uh, that includes uh, farms and farm workers, food processing sector, and meat packing and meat packing workers. And cases are still ticking up in all of those sectors. Uh, 
the pace uh, has has leveled off a little bit, and I've been spending some time uh, trying to sort of figure out is that because of a, a decline in cases or because of a decline in data reporting on the part of public mm-hmm. and private sectors. Uh, so that's that's sort of an open question, uh, but we're still seeing even with those data obstacles, cases rising. We're approaching. Uh, 60,000 cases across the three sectors, and over 250 workers have died as of September 21st, the most recent update. Wow. And I was digging into some of those um, graphs and charts that you have. Um, I really recommend people go to the Food and Environment Reporting Network website and look for Leah's map because it really is a fascinating snapshot of what is happening in uh, all three, as she says, all three of those sectors, processing, farm workers and meat packers, um, and sort of how cases are growing or not growing uh, as um you know, as things may be. And one of the other things that I I just, I didn't include in our outline today, but you made a point of, um, uh, in one of your tweets of having to tick up, um, the cases in Kansas, like suddenly Kansas, the state of Kansas released, uh, all sorts of figures, uh, showing the impact of COVID on some of the workers in that state, some of the food workers in that state. And, And that was quite substantial. And then, you alluded to the fact that perhaps they were not going to release those figures again. Can you just kind of refresh me on that? Sure. So this is a great example of how the data that I'm collecting is really directly affected by the decisions that states make around how they report COVID data uh, in their uh, business sector. So the state of Kansas announced in late August that they were going to begin releasing information about COVID outbreaks uh, by sector, by employer, starting on September 9th. And this was a big departure. You know, we know that there are thousands of meatpacking workers in Kansas that have contracted COVID-19, but that data was difficult to get. And I was usually getting it through news reports and things like that. So not a reliable, um, I mean, obviously a reliable source, but not necessarily knowing when the next update would come. So to have a regularly updating, you know, public database for that information was very exciting to me. So the first round of that information, September 9th, added several hundred new cases to the database that that I'm um, that to, to my meatpacking worker count, uh, partially because, you know, a lot of those outbreaks, there just hadn't been reporting on updated case figures. And there were a couple of new outbreaks that I hadn't seen reported elsewhere. So uh, that was, you know, a big step forward in terms of transparency. The following week, when I went to check the website for the update, uh, it had been replaced, the data had been replaced ah. with just a note um, saying, you know, we got a lot of feedback on uh, releasing the data this way, and we're reconsidering our approach, you know, check back for more information in the future. Um, so that's, you know, that's an interesting and unfortunate turn of events uh, that under that, you know, you, you could sort of see that trend happening in other states as well, where, you know, there's a sort of halting steps forward towards transparency, but then um, either pressure from private industry or other types of political pressure uh, causes the repeal of those transparent reporting practices. So I'm certainly hoping um, that they're going to resume that and have asked for some questions and clarifications. So we'll see where we get. Absolutely. Have you observed this? Uh, I mean, you say that this is the case in, in a number of states. Where else have you actually seen this going on? I suppose uh, Nebraska has a big plant, has a bunch of big plants. Colorado uh, in the south, they have all the chicken and pork processing. Where, where are you seeing this elsewhere? Well, in terms of the specific, um, you know, the specific situation of having a new process and then that process sort of being walked back and changed, I've noticed that in a few places. Another place is Arkansas, where, um, you know, actually they, the state of Arkansas had done some pretty consistent 
um, high-level, you know, data reporting on the poultry industry, where were there outbreaks specifically, which companies, how many cases, and that data was updated actually multiple times a week. Um, last week, I went to to go find that data, and those reports were not there. Um, you know, I asked about it. They said the new new report is coming, and today the new report was released and actually has has shifted from from um, from reporting the specific names of companies where there are outbreaks to just reporting the, the sector. Uh, so you can't Ooh. go to that report anymore and just see, oh, Tyson Foods has an outbreak. It says manufacturing in this town has an outbreak of so many cases. So um, that information, I'm told, is is um, available upon request. But there's a difference between, you know, especially for a layperson going to read that report uh, who might not follow up for directly with the um, ADH, the Department of Health, for more information. Um, you know, that's a big shift. So that's another state. And I'm actually working on a story now that will spell out uh, some other trends like that that I've seen. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading that. So in the meantime, that's very interesting stuff. Let's definitely, I'm going to make a note of that for our next phone call next month. Um, in the meantime, uh, your figures, your map was used by both Smithfield and the North American Meat Institute, which for people who don't know, NAMI is a big lobbying organization for uh, the meatpacking industry. Um they both used your figures in uh, their basically their public relations pushback against the recent fines imposed by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and um, Health Administration. And in fact, both uh, companies are contesting the fines that they have been given. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting that they used your figures to show a decline in the rate of cases. Would you say that that was an appropriate use of your figures um, is, or were they somehow... Um, manipulating those figures to make it look better than it actually is. Well, I was definitely very interested to see uh, NAMI, the meat lobby, using oh, uh, the data. You, <laughs> um, you know, I'm always pleased when people use the data. And of course, you know, I believe it's very rigorous and, you know, everyone is welcome to use it. Um, I hope it's helpful to all parties. At the same time, NAMI's report on uh, essentially, as you said, the data was, was used to show, um, you know, as NAMI put it, a decline in the number of cases that they uh, used as evidence to say, you know, meatpacking companies, uh, preventative measures to keep workers safe are working. We're seeing cases go down. Uh, I would really uh, disagree with that finding. And I took, I spelled it out on Twitter as well. Um, folks can follow up on that. And essentially, you know, the issue is they ascribed some um, specific spikes in the data to, you know, holiday weekends as sort of drawing the implicit comparison to, well, you know, um, people are gathering on holiday weekends that might account for the spikes. And that was, you know, not the reason we saw spikes on those dates. And I, um, delineated on Twitter, you know, what was going on those dates and essentially, you know, they hadn't checked with me about, um, information like that to sort of clarify what the data was telling, you know, the, the, the question of our cases leveling off or going down, as I mentioned at the beginning is of course, you know, crucially important. And, and I'm trying to figure that out as well. But I haven't necessarily gathered the evidence that that I would need to make that definitive a statement. And, you know, NAMI didn't present evidence for that either, other than, um, you know, drawing a conclusion about the data. So, so you know, again, I think it's, it's a question I'm trying to answer, um, but I don't think that their approach uh, was as accurate. Right. As I suspected, I just wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth. Um, what what I failed to say in, in uh, before I brought that question out was the fact that that OSHA has finally, after six months, come out and levied some fines. And the fines total $29,000, one to JBS for about 15000 and something, and one to Smithfield for 13000 and something. Um, 
I mean, those are so small as to be laughable. Uh, what, what, what did you make of that? Like OSHA, like what happened? Well, this is really fascinating. You know, those those fines were levied for for the handling of specific outbreaks at specific facilities, um, and you know, uh, with the charge that these companies had not adequately protected their workers from COVID. Um, you know, two of the largest outbreaks in the country are, are the ones being targeted by these fines. But of course, there are other outbreaks that are comparably large uh, that were not fined. You know, there's a question there about how the fine tool is being applied. And I think, you know, those fines have received a lot of criticism from worker advocates, labor advocates, um, you know, all types of folks who are invested in the the well-being of workers in this sector to say, you know, those fines were not large enough to prompt any type of different action from um, the companies, you know, and OSHA responded to that criticism by saying that um, this was the limit of a certain type of, of fine application that they could use. And then, you know, the former head of OSHA responded to that by saying that they could have used a different uh, fine tool to give substantially higher fines into the millions. So, you know, it's very controversial how these fines are applied. And I think it also opens the question to me of, you know, what are these fines for? How is that fine regulatory tool supposed to be used? Um, Because I think it's, you know, a fair assumption that you know, a fine of this size is is extremely trivial to a company with the margin of Smithfield or JBS uh, that makes, you know, extraordinary profits. So um, it's, 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 uh, I can understand the, the criticism and feedback that a fine of that size would necessarily, necessarily compel different behavior. Um, so that's another question that, that I'm exploring as well. Yes. Looking forward to that. I mean, just as a contrast, you note that, um, I don't know whether you noted this, but you noted on Twitter that Bluebell ice cream was socked with a 1.7 or sorry, with a $17 million fine for a listeria outbreak. Now, in that case, it was consumers who got sick. It wasn't the workers. But I mean, that's one example of OSHA levying what sounds like an appropriate fine to me. And then you also, or I also read that the California state OSHA levied a $200,000 fine against uh, one or several of their local processors. So, I mean, the disparity between these fines is, is kind of breathtaking. And and then and that also made me wonder, like, why does California have its own OSHA? Does every state have its own OSHA? That's just a dumb question, but I don't know the answer, so I'm asking you. No, it's a great it's a great observation, and so many <laughs> people have also asked me this question of, you know, why do we have a fifteen thousand dollar fine in one case, two hundred thousand dollar fine in another case, seventeen million dollar in a third case? You know, again, I think it raises a question about the utility of these fines, and you know what I said on Twitter about the comparison between. Um, you know, the fines applied for meatpacking plant workers and management of COVID and the fine applied to Bluebell ice cream for its management of the Listeria outbreak was, you know, in that outbreak, I believe, you know, 10 people were confirmed sick and three people died, of course, you know, horrible tragedy. In these two outbreaks, however, there were over 1,500 workers who were sickened and 10 workers died. Um, So if this was a consistent fine application, you would imagine that the fine for the meatpacking plants would be, you know, substantially higher given the higher toll human toll of, of the outbreak, uh, in both cases dealing with the pathogen, spread of a pathogen. So, um, you know, it raises a question around, uh, you know, how does this, um, you know, translate into how, you know, the lives of workers are are valued uh, in comparison with the lives of, um, of you know, consumers who are buying ice right. cream and, and getting sick. So I think those are all, um, again, this is an issue that I, I imagine we'll see more of, uh, more fines coming out, uh, and it'll be very interesting to see how that progresses. 
Absolutely. And it does make me wonder, and of course, I, I read a long ProPublica article that came out, I think, last in, in April or May um, about this, but they they made the point of saying that there was a lot of, um, you know, f- uh, top government officials sort of leaning heavily on um, OSHA, on various other entities to allow meatpacking to to go forward as what as it was, um, and I, I just wondered if if OSHA is also uh, being subjected to a lot of political pressure to uh, sort of give hands off to the meatpacking industry, and that that's sort of an interesting question in and of itself. Like, why would they be more? I mean, I, you would think the dairy industry, for example, would like bust a gut over a seventeen million dollar fine to an ice cream baker, you know, like. <laughs> Why aren't they also having a, a an, an attack with OSHA and and um, putting some pressure on them not to levy these big fines? I don't know. It just the whole thing stinks to me. Anyway, that is my simplistic analysis of this situation. Um, another thing that I read recently uh, was that the in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Smithfield uh, claims that they have spent over three hundred and fifty million dollars on COVID-related issues, uh, presumably including PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, is there any evidence uh, that they have begun to better equip or distance or place barriers for their workers? What what are they? What do you surmise they are referring to when they talk about this large expenditure? Sure. So I think in, in the case of meatpacking companies, when they're talking about uh, what they've spent on, on managing COVID, that can run the, gam- the gamut from personal protective equipment, installing physical barriers like plastic shields in between workers in the processing mm-hmm. line. Um, it could account for uh, paying for sick time off um, and enhanced uh, worker benefits. For instance, there were uh, you know bonuses given out, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, for workers to uh, to incentivize workers to come into work, you know, those are very controversial. But I think when I've heard from meat packers uh, how they're describing their expenses, all of those uh, different uh, types of expenses are grouped together. Mm, I see. Well, I would say public relations probably figures in heavily. Because, <laughs> I mean, workers are not, to my knowledge, aren't getting an awful lot of uh, sick leave uh, pay, etc. Um, what about things like... Um, their efforts to uh, test their workers, that would presumably come under that $350 million uh, umbrella of money that they've spent on COVID. What Do you have uh, any sense of whether testing has been picked up or extended or is an ongoing effort or, you know, any of the things that we would have normally assumed that they would, you know, protocols they would follow in order to minimize the impact of COVID? What, what do you see in terms of testing? Is that something that is back to business as usual, i.e. like they did it for the first couple of weeks and now they're not doing it so much? Or, or is this an ongoing uh, legitimate effort? That's a great question. And it's something I've revisited a few times during the pandemic. Um, and I do, you know, I think you're, you're, you're right that um, testing is probably lumped into that. Um, you know, when they're talking about $350 million, I'm sure their testing efforts are part of that. Um, you know, it's very difficult to know. It's an unsatisfying answer, but uh, it's very difficult to know where the main packers are at in terms of their testing because simply very little information is being shared. Uh, we do know that Tyson Foods, uh, which I think we discussed in a prior episode, um, mm-hmm. did roll out enhanced testing for its workers over the summer, um, saying that there would be, uh, you know, testing available at many more of its facilities and 
uh, and expanding, you know, our workers' ability to access that testing. However, I haven't seen any reporting on or reports from the company on, you know, where exactly that's been rolled out and certainly not on the results of any testing. Uh, mm-hmm. For Smithfield, JBS, Cargill, other large meat packers, uh, they've been a little bit less specific about how their testing is uh, is being rolled out. Um, you know, in Smithfield, I know at one point the company, uh, you know, in a response to one of my questions said testing is available. Um, however, the definition of what available means uh, really depends. And in some plants, you know, workers will report that, you know, it's only available on, for instance, a certain day for a certain shift, um, certain type of worker, uh, if it's available at all. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in there that the companies have not generally addressed. You know, it's just uh, the the there are so many ways in which the Trump, I'm, I'm going to digress for a moment, you'll forgive me, Leah, but there are so many ways in which the Trump administration and the meatpacking industry, industry are kind of one and the same. And one of those ways is the stonewalling and the opacity of what is going on. Now, the meat packers have always been this way. I mean, it's like Trump took a page out of their playbook. But I mean, they they just refuse to answer questions. They just say they don't have to tell you anything. I mean, by and large, wouldn't you agree that that was that there is a, there's a certain amount of parallels to what's going on in the industry that I shouldn't ask you this question. Never mind. I'm just making a statement. Never mind. But just it just, you know, it just blows my mind how suddenly the administration is able to do exactly what the meatpackers have done for really generations at this point, which is to not cough up any information about anything they don't feel like. I'm just going to leave it there for now. Let's take a quick break, come back uh, after a sponsor drop, and we will resume our discussion about uh, COVID and meatpacking and also the famous guidances, which... um, Well, it's anybody's guess what those are. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Leah Douglas. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a trailblazer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has been making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin for more than 30 years. Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses named Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. When you buy Roth, you know their cheeses will always be made with good ingredients, will always taste good, and will always make you feel good when sharing with friends and family. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. So this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're speaking with Leah Douglas today. We're talking about meatpacking. What a surprise on my show. I know I hardly ever talk about that. It is only my favorite subject. And it's not just because I was a butcher for five years. Did you know that about me, Leah? I worked as I a butcher. I did not. <laughs> yeah, before it was cool, by the way. I did it in the 80s. <laughs> 80s and 90s, I guess. Um, But anyway, so one of the things that um, when Smithfield and JBS and, you know, the other meat packers were, were, you know, whinging on about their minuscule fines and they said, well, you know, how were we supposed to know what to do? We didn't receive any quote unquote guidance from the government. And so um, they claim that they were unable to identify what new protocols they were supposed to impose to keep their workers safe. Do you think they have a point with that, or would it just have been common sense to follow what the CDC said, which was socially distance, wear uh, protective gear, and um, not breathe the same air? 
Well, you know, definitely in the course of my reporting, you know, it's been a really universal opinion from many different types of experts that um, having more specific and required uh, guidance around how the company should be acting to protect workers uh, would be extremely helpful. You know, I think that there's been, again, a lot of ambiguity around how the companies uh, can best take those steps to protect workers, what that means, um, and what threshold the companies need to meet in order to be adhering to government uh, standards. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're starting to see litigation arise around uh, COVID exposure in, in many sectors, but this has come up in meatpacking, um, where you know it's it's uh, a line of defense for the meatpacking industry to say, well, you know, there were only voluntary guidelines provided, and we met you know the specific threshold. Um, but it's not as though there's a rigorous standard held equally to every company. Um, so I think it is it creates confusion and ambiguity that um, we're going to see returning in different ways as the pandemic goes on and as you know workers and employers try to figure out you know who's culpable in the spread of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair, like, it's true, nobody knew what to do. I mean, everybody was blindsided by this. So I can understand the confusion initially. But I did read and follow up uh, material to that, uh, to that um, question of like, you know, how are we supposed to know what to do? That um, now they some of them say, I think it was JBS, some a spokesman for JBS said that they now exceed what the government protocols are, um, just as they have learned, you know, along the way that, you know, some things work better than other things. And I am sure that's true. I mean, who wants to have to keep hiring people because they're, you know, workers are getting sick and spreading disease. Anyway, let's talk about that fact that there is so much ambiguity. Who, in fact, is in charge of the so-called guidance. Like we have plenty of um, models for what to do if you, and a pandemic hits the poultry industry or the pork industry, you know, like if, if you know, avian flu rips through the chicken industry, you know, they have a playbook for that. But nobody has had a playbook for uh, a pandemic ripping through workers. So who in fact would be tr- in charge of that? Would that, is that FDA, USDA, the CDC, uh, the Department of Labor? I mean, you know who's writing this stuff like who's thinking about this and 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 are they is there any sense of them of somebody thinking about what to do the next time we have a covid yeah this is a great question so when we're talking about these voluntary uh, guidelines in terms of how meatpacking plants should you know respond to covid and take precautions in the plants there was a cdc guidance issued early on in the pandemic uh, that set up uh, those voluntary uh, guidelines and thresholds um, you know, this is a great uh, a great point about this is very this is an issue that cuts across a lot of different federal agencies and particularly yeah. in meatpacking, it's not just labor as you said it ties in FDA, USDA, um, and these agencies all have a slightly different posture towards uh, you know how they're responding to the crisis. You know, I think one of the difficult uh, situations of this this presents is that no one agency is necessarily the agency to turn to around every issue affecting workers in meatpacking plants, for instance, or any food system worker. Um, you know, for instance, none of these agencies is collecting data about how many workers are sick. This is a you know an issue I'm obviously very familiar with. Um, you know, I haven't been able to rely on those agencies for any information. Mm. You know, I've had and I and I don't think that's common knowledge. I've had states refer me to USDA when I'm soliciting data from state health departments about. COVID cases, they'll say, well, USDA regulates meatpacking facilities, but that has no bearing on, you know, who's collecting that data. Um, so I think, you know, that that this has been a, a topic of conversation around 
food system regulation for as long as I've been working in the field, that the fact that multiple agencies oversee different parts of food production creates, you know, already was creating issues and and things were slipping through the cracks. um, And there were different incentives and different polls on each agency. And in a crisis like COVID, we absolutely, you know, see that extra spotlight that, you know, there's, there's some issues presented when there's multiple agencies involved. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that um, didn't when Ebo, when uh, the Obama administration confronted Ebola, didn't he assign like a sort of a, a czar? I hate it when they come up with these terms, but anyway, but you know, somebody who was kind of the overall coordinator, and I and I'm wondering if that's a position that a future government, you know, federal government should invest in. Um, because I don't see that these pandemics are going to stop necessarily. And then, you know, we have other sort of medical crises on the horizon, like the loss of antibiotics and so forth that, you know, are ancillary to this. But, but you know, just somebody who's kind of going to bring back that playbook that they put together and then coordinate across agencies, that seems like something that should happen. I think you should write to Congress, Leah. They're going to listen to you a lot more than they're going to listen to me. <laughs> The well, blowhard, <laughs> but right. It's I a mean, great point too about um, about planning. You know, I'm reminded uh, ProPublica did a big investigation a couple of months ago that you know I would direct yeah. um, you know listeners who are interested in this, where they essentially found that you know meatpacking, the meatpacking industry and sector had been uh, told several times, including by federal agencies, to prepare for some sort of pandemic akin to COVID nineteen, and there had been essentially no major steps taken by the industry to prepare. Um, you know, and of course, COVID-19 was unimaginable to many of us uh, before it began. At the same time, you know, there there is, you know, the government had been uh, providing guidance on how to prepare, how to prepare your workers, how to prepare for uh, massive worker absenteeism that could be caused by a pandemic, which is, of course, exactly what happened in mm-hmm. March and April. So, um, you know, that it's not uh, when we think about moving forward, we can also look backward to see, you know, where there were where there was that solicitation of the industry to make those preparations and they chose not to. Yes. Well, isn't that interesting? And then what about, you know, the fact that there is a failure to coordinate, um, do you feel like that also has an impact on food safety as well as the safety of the workers? I mean, like I said before, and I may have been in the ProPublica piece that I read that you just referenced, um, that they have all of these, you know, they've simulated drills with what happens when, you know, 50,000 pigs die, you know, or 2 million hens, which of course we've seen both of those things happen quite recently. Um, but, but they don't have the, the playbook for the, for the workers, but does that also have an impact on food safety overall? Do you think? You know, in the COVID-19 pandemic, I haven't seen um, necessarily a link between the the different agencies overseeing the pandemic and food safety. You know, there hasn't mm-hmm. been much indication that, um, you know, our food has been in some way affected uh, by necessarily, for, for instance, illness at plants. Um, but I think it goes back to those fines we talked about earlier, where, um, you know, food safety often rings a bell of urgency with uh, regulators and consumers in a way that, um, you know, I think it, it probably boils down to most consumers see themselves uh, more reflected in another ice cream purchaser than they do in a meatpacking worker. Um, of course, you know, many, many people are also meatpacking workers as well as ice cream buyers, but uh, right. <laughs> that's not necessarily the way that these uh, issues are framed. And so I think, 
um, you know, that lack of coordination um, or lack of coherency among the fines, right, you know, the fi- application of the fines, um, yeah. I think, spell, you know, is one of those examples where, um, you know, we can elevate in some cases the importance of, you know, food safety in the lives of consumers where we might, uh, another agency might have a different approach uh, when workers are on the line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They clearly seem to be very separated in my mind. I mean, I, I don't see any overlap at all. Um, and and let's let's talk for a second about um, now that it's harvest season, a lot more people working in fields. Are, I, we should have talked about this at the top of the show when we were talking about the map. But did you see in the last month an uptick in um, virus numbers in farm workers? Because I would think now when you have so many more people not necessarily working together in fields, but living together, traveling to and from fields together. Um, I would think that would be a situation that would be ripe for a rise in numbers. Have you uh, seen a commensurate rise? Yes, definitely. You know, throughout the summer, definitely cases were ticking up uh, very quickly in the farm work sector. Um, you know, as as exactly you said, the trends uh, populationally, you know, we're, when we see more people in the fields, more people on farms, migrant workers arriving, um, that all corresponded to a higher number of cases. Uh, you know, f- farm work is probably the sector where uh, where the least rigorous data is available. Um, you know, this is for a number of reasons. You know, farm workers are a uh, very vulnerable workforce. Uh, you know, many folks are not citizens of the U.S. Uh, it's also a migratory workforce in some yeah. cases. So um, just from a logistical standpoint, you know, a worker who um, arrives in a specific state and is tested there, but then moves on. Um, you know, it can be difficult to track, uh, you know, COVID numbers with with uh, that type of trend. Um, so, you know, I have been able to get some data, but uh, there's absolutely uh, more cases out there that that I wasn't able to track just because of of those uh, of that irregular data. And you know, it's going to be um, interesting to see, you know, as the seasons change and farm work shifts across the country into different. Uh, different stages of the season, uh, what will happen in terms of cases rising or falling. Mm-hmm. Like I could see the Imperial Valley in California and the Central Valley in California becoming ever more of a hot spot, while other states uh, whose, you know, fields might be done for the winter um, become less, much less so. It's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of a fascinating <laughs> exercise. I mean, I was thinking about the transient nature of farm workers, you know, so you have a guy who works on farm A for two weeks, then he moves on to B, and then he moves on to C. You're absolutely right in pointing out that there is no way anyone is going to keep track of that guy. I mean, those tests, even if they get tested at every single location, it's almost meaningless. And, you know, it's just a, the, the testing infrastructure was just not set up in advance to accommodate that. And, you know, we've seen in several states, um, a real fumbling by the state government to try to figure out how to how to serve the needs of farm worker populations, you know, whether in California, North Carolina, New Jersey, um, you know, there's been some legislative response, there's been some executive order response, but um, ultimately, you know, all of those things have happened too slowly to really have uh, testing available when it was needed and the ability for workers to really rely on government uh, structures and support. And unfortunately, now mm-hmm. we're approaching mid-September where um, you know, we're in peak season in many places and approaching the end of the season in other places. And, um, you know, it's not clear that many of those precautions or um, or supports will be more r- rigorous before the season, before the year is over. No, I, I don't see any signs whatsoever. I mean, they, you know, basically, I feel like everything is on hold until November 3rd. 
I mean, legislatively, except for trying to jam through a new justice. But, you know, aside from that, I don't feel like anything is going to happen between now and November 3rd, which is kind of a terrifying and yet somewhat comforting moment, because on the one hand, you could imagine something awful happening. On the other hand, um, you know, it's comforting to think that nothing awful can happen because, <laughs> because they're waiting to see, you know, who the next president is going to be. Oh, my God. Um, I guess, you know, I was going to wrap this up by saying, how do you feel about the trends overall? Um are we more or less marking time still the same, pretty much the same level? You said meatpacking has slightly declined, but then you also point out that they're also not producing the same transparency in their numbers as they might have done, uh, you know, in previous months. So where, where do you see the nation in terms of the, you know, sort of farm to farm to fork uh, as far as the safety of workers goes and the spread of the disease? Well, you know, I'm I'm definitely concerned right now with the, you know, the fall and winter uh, months, you know, in many parts of the country, we're going into a colder season where, you know, we know that many, many regions were anticipating a potential or likely um, spike in cases. And so, you know, I'm closely watching to prepare for the possibility of that in the meatpacking and food processing sectors, um, you know, impossible to predict, but I'm definitely watching that. And, you know, I've been very concerned to see, you know, less reporting, both from, you know, private companies and from states uh, around, you know, data and cases, um, you know, especially as national attention is pulled away, um, very understandably and necessarily by, you know, climate related uh, natural disasters and um, other issues that are plaguing us, you know, this, this remains a really chronic issue. And, um, you know, so I'm discontinuing to press where I can, especially from the states and local governments to get as much information as possible. So we can really try to understand you know, is is our cases leveling off in the sector or is it being artificially suppressed um, or, you know, are my figures sort of artificially low because the, the data isn't being reported? So, you know, I just encourage folks to to keep reading about this issue. And um, I'm going to keep pressing on that, especially into the fall and winter. Thank goodness for you, Leah Douglas. That's all I can say. I hope everybody is listening to this and, you know, passing this on to their friends, because really without our essential workers, um, we really do face food security issues going forward uh, in, on all sorts of levels. And it's, it's a very frightening, uh, you know, time to be in that business. <laughs> I know I'm certainly, I'm glad I'm not working in the food service right now, as I have done for most of my life. Anyway, Leah Douglas, I'm going to let you go for there from there. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today. And, um, and thanks so much for the great reporting you do. Honestly, your halo is shining all the way from uh, Washington, D.C., right up here to Rhode Island. <laughs> thanks so much, Katie. I appreciate it. But, all right. Thanks. And thanks for listening, folks. Thanks to my sponsor. We'll see you next week with another show. Ciao for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.